This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Episode 3 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, Johnny Brumberg paints the global picture, highlighting why South African President Cyril Mamposa is receiving so many plaudits for Monday night's announcement of a complete lockdown, and why, from an economic perspective, it took so much courage. We'll have a couple of entrepreneurs following him. Bernard Swanepoel will be wearing his small business institute hat. And then Mark Wachtsberger, who's the founding chief executive of The Capital, who shares how he has adjusted the business to offset the impact of a virus that has laid low much of the tourism and hospitality sector. We'll also hear from experienced money manager Sam Hooley of ReCM CounterPoint, who explains why he's spoiled for choice right now and hasn't been this eager to buy shares since the global financial crisis. Closing off this episode, we'll hear how the super wealthy are handling the obvious threat of the COVID-19 crisis to the property sector, where many are heavily invested. First today's COVID-19 headlines, there were further signs that China is well past the worst with its government announcing on Tuesday it would let healthy people leave Wuhan from April the 8th. That eases a lockdown at the initial epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the past week, China has reported several days without new domestic infections. It's a very different picture in the United States, however, where there were more than 13,000 new infections on Monday alone, taking the U.S.'s figure to over 46,000. That's the third highest in the world behind China and Italy. More than 392,000 people have now been infected worldwide. 17,159 of them have died. While President Ramaphosa is praised universally for taking the right steps to try contain COVID-19 in South Africa, U.S. President Donald Trump has indicated that he may be thinking of easing the stay-at-home advice that's currently adopted in most states in America. Bloomberg News White House correspondent Josh Wingrove was asked what the president was thinking. Um, hard to say. <laughs> in the mind that there is some sort of way to have your cake and eat it too, that you can signal to Americans that, you know, it's gone again, we're getting through this. Um, you can start, you know, stepping back a bit from the measures that we've all started taking in the last while. Um, but health officials are going to push back on that and say we are not out of the woods yet. For instance, the caseloads are still rising. We have no idea when, the, when they will plateau in terms of new cases. Uh, the deaths, of course, continue to rise. America has a shortage of testing and of medical supplies to treat it, everything from masks to hospital beds and ventilators. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, clouds on the horizon. And it, would be, it seems like a weird time for him to be preparing to sort of declare victory and start coming back uh, towards a more normal life. Share prices rallied strongly around the world Tuesday on news that the White House and U.S. Congress are close to signing off a $1.6 trillion stimulus package that will counter 
damage of COVID-19 to the U.S. economy. The sticking point has been the way in which Donald Trump's Republican Party wants to allocate $500 billion of this in support of business. Welcome to Johnny Brumberg, the Chief Executive of Vitality Health International. Johnny, uh, most people in South Africa would know you as running Discovery Health here in this country. How's the new world going? Uh, It's been very interesting, uh, Alec. Obviously, this is a particularly interesting time now with this pandemic that the world is facing. But uh, as you probably know, Discovery does operate health insurance businesses in other parts of the world, the UK, China, Australia, and the US. So that's really my new portfolio and trying to trying to share the learnings and best practice from the com- countries where we're large and successful to those where we're, you know, a startup and trying to break in. You do have a relationship with Generali, who's a, a big Italian company. So clearly you've been watching not just because of the disaster that's going on in Italy, but perhaps also from a, a business perspective. What are you making of all that? You know, I think Italy is obviously particularly hard hit, but it's now really becoming a global issue. And, and all that we're seeing is that each country, you know, is just on a different part of the the trajectory. So. I think, you know, you're already seeing, we're already seeing news today that the mortality rate uh, in New York could be exceeding that of the worst parts of Italy uh, in the next few days. So it's not an Italian problem per se. We just know a lot about that one. And we are not involved in health insurance with Generali at all at this point. We're partners with them uh, from a life insurance point of view. Wow, that story about New York is a bit concerning. What's going yeah. on there? Well, I mean, I think, um, Alec, you know, there, there are a number of factors that, uh, that are at play here and things are moving so fast that I don't think anybody could, you know, confidently tell you that they know the whole story. Uh, I think what you've got is, uh, firstly, the demographics. So in those parts of Italy, the average age is, is significantly older than, than the rest of the population. New York also has quite an elderly population. There's some talk in the Italian uh, situation that the strain of the virus there is a more virulent one uh, than, say, in South Korea. So there's some talk about that. And then, of course, there's the, there's the response of government and, and, and the system. I think in the U.S., they have acted quite late in terms of a complete shutdown. So the virus was allowed, um, you know, several weeks to spread in the community before the lockdown. And once that starts happening, it's just a matter of time before somewhere between 5 and 10% of people, you know, end up with serious illness and a subset of those inevitably die, particularly if they're older or have serious underlying medical conditions. So I think a lot of it is to do with the timing at which governments are moving into suppression of the spread I think we're fortunate that it arrived in South Africa relatively late. Um, we still have very little spread inside the community. In other words, the number of infections where there's no travel history is still quite small. And the government, you know, I think um, all credit to the president and the Minister of Health and others, they've moved decisively now into this lockdown. And there's just some decent chance that we will be able to flatten this curve 
more effectively than some of these other countries that let things run uh, on for too long. What does that mean, flatten the curve? We hear the comment often, indeed, we even heard it from the, com- uh, from the president last night. Yes. So, Alec, let me try and draw a picture for you and your listeners. If you think about a normal distribution curve, um, you know, where you've got a y-axis, that's the number of cases, and the horizontal axis at the bottom is time. Uh, if you leave this virus un- unchecked, you just spread through the community, you get a very high peak very early. So within a few weeks, you get this huge peak of infections, and then it starts to drop off because virtually the whole population becomes infected. So have that picture in your mind of a very thin, high peak on a graph. Uh, then picture situation where what you actually do now is you push, you firstly by suppressing economic activity and population sort of, um, you know, activity, um, you stop the transmission of the virus. So the peak is much lower and it gets spread out over a much longer period. So um, you're flattening the curve, you're squashing down that very high peak, and you're pushing it out towards the right of the curve. Why why do governments want to do that? I think there's some very compelling reasons, because there's obviously, Alec, as you'll know, a huge cost to this from an economic point of view. So it's a terribly hard decision for a government to make. But the reason for it is, is very clear. The first is you buy time, to get the health system ready to deal with the very large number of cases that would emerge too quickly if you didn't try and flatten the curve. You get a huge number of sick people flooding the hospitals. The hospitals get overrun. They can't treat the people who need treatment, and you you get a higher number of deaths. So if you can flatten that curve and push it out, you buy time. And we've been, I think, lucky enough, both our public and private sector systems have had time and they're getting ready every day. They're getting more and more ready to deal with the load. Um, and so that's a one very big reason. Of course, also, every day that goes by, there's progress on potential drugs to treat. There's already a few emerging that look favorable. Every day that goes by, we're closer to a vaccine. So uh, there are all kinds of compelling reasons to flatten the curve, to, to use that term again. Mm. How... Just before we talk about those drugs and, and, and the good news on that side, it did appear as though, at least at, at one point, the UK were using something that they referred to as infecting the herd. In other words, yes. uh, this, this short, sharp uh, picture that you drew from us right in the beginning. What, what were they yes. trying to achieve there? So there's a very well-known um, concept in virology. It's you know, very, very clearly established that at a certain point, when enough of the population have been infected and, and, and because, you know, with, after any viral infection, the human body develops immunity. You only get a viral infection once generally. So uh, when enough of the population have immunity, the virus can no longer survive because it needs a certain number of infections to keep moving from one person to another and it eventually dies out. That's what happened to smallpox. That's why measles is almost doesn't exist when most in, most kids get vaccinated and so on. So that's called herd immunity, and it's typically somewhere around you know 60 to 80 percent of the population, depending on the virus. When when they've been exposed, the virus literally can't really function anymore, and it disappears. Um, 
So what what the Johnson government had been advised by some of the, their advisors was that take the pain in the short term, and then very quickly there'll be herd immunity, and um, and then the virus will die out. Of course, what they didn't take into account was that you know the the estimates eventually emerged from a a model done at Imperial College that that the cost of that would be probably in the U, in the UK half a million lives. So you know that, and nobody could really contest that. So I think the government had to face up to the fact that yes, that herd immunity would work. You'd keep your economy going, but at a huge cost um, in human life. The number in the U.S. for the same would be 2.2 million lives. Yeah, I was going to so, I was going to yeah. touch on that 2.2 million because that did uh, up to that point it was almost as though the U.S. was willfully not applying the measures that have been applied elsewhere. I suppose it's all speculative now, but uh, certainly the White House initially saying it was fake news and secondly d- dismissing the, uh, the 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 COVID-19 as uh, being something that that wasn't really that serious. It's, ta- it's taken them a long time to wake up to to how scary this is, and I presume that that Imperial College study did it. It may have. It may have. I think also just the rising number of cases in the big U.S. cities and the deaths, um, you know, just made it kind of t- too obvious to ignore. Um, it's still the case that there isn't a federal call for a lockdown. Not all states are under lockdown in the U.S., only some of them, and you're probably following the news like I am that that President Trump is muttering uh, every day now about wanting to lift the lockdowns because he's clearly worried about the economy and about his re-election prospects. But I think that the state governments and the cities uh, in the big areas that are affected know that they cannot afford to lift the lockdown. And you can see in China now, when you do do it very effectively, or South Korea, you literally suppress the virus, and they're now slowly starting to let people go back to work, obviously still very cautiously. Um, there will probably be second and third waves of infection, but they can then you know, act on those very quickly. Meanwhile, their systems are ready to deal with it, and you know, they've restored confidence in the economy. So it was you know, short, sharp, but very effective action. It's about two months now, isn't it, in China, and uh, we're just two and a half months, and they're starting to remove the lockdown. Mm, and the infections are going down. Why would that be? Well, I think the infections go down because there's no opportunity to spread. So, you know, this infection jumps from person to person through proximity. If you're hanging around in a crowd and you are infected and you sneeze or you touch a surface, and, you know, every other person who's close to your touches that surface gets infected. If people are in their houses and if all people who are infected, you know, are separated from everybody else, eventually it does. It's literally stopped spreading. So you've seen recently, you know, that in China now there's almost no local infections. The only ones that they're counting daily are imported, um, you know, from travelers coming in. So it stopped spreading inside the population because the population stopped mixing with each other. And as I, I said before, obviously that, that has catastrophic economic consequences. So that's why governments are faced with this tremendous balancing act of when do we restart our economy versus keep the virus uh, under control. Very and those, tough. And those second and third waves that you spoke about? Well, I mean, firstly, it's all speculation. No one's seen one yet. No one's seen one yet, um, but 
they uh, it is expected to you know because you could imagine just theoretically Alec in say Wuhan or anywhere in China um, the, once people start going back to the work to to work and 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 to offices you know you just need one person infected and you'll start getting more spread but at this point firstly a lot of people um, you know have immunity because they were infected secondly. Um, the health system is incredibly geared up and the society is geared up. So I would imagine the minute the authorities saw a cluster or spread in a part of a city, they would lock it down again. So it is just the whole thing buys time for all of society to get ready. Compare that to the absolute kind of crisis mode of, say, the Lombardy region of Italy or, or Spain now. And I think even the, the UK and New York to some extent where it's just panic stations because the hospitals are overrun, you know, and, and the systems aren't in place to manage the the, the volume of, of care that's needed. So from everything you've said, it appears as though in South Africa we've handled this or our government has handled this pretty well. Uh, look, I definitely think they have. I think they've been courageous. We have less firepower as an economy to back the economy compared to, say, China or the U.S. or Europe, where we just don't have the fiscal resources. So the economic cost here is going to be greater, I think, than in other countries. Uh, we started off on the back foot. And so, it's, if you like, the lockdown is a braver decision for our government than for others. It was also taken quickly and decisively. Um, Alec, you know, I think a lot here depends on how our population responds to this lockdown. And, you know, I think leaders in, in the society need to appeal profoundly to every citizen to to really take this incredibly seriously. People need to stay at home, leave only, you know, for the most essential errands um, and, and, you know, not interact with too many other people. You know, we, we tend to be a, a society that that's, can be a bit ungovernable and a bit disrespectful of the law. And if that happens here, then all our government's good actions will be to no avail. But I do think you're right. I think we've 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 had the blessing of time because it did arrive here later than North America and Europe. We've had summer, which has slowed the spread. You know, so these things are worse in in the cold winter months. So we've had some luck on our side, but we've also had decisive action. Mm. What about the to end off with the medication? Is there any good news that's emerging now? Presumably, China has been at this or attacking this. For yeah, quite China's some time. been at it, um, and the U.S. scientific community and the Europeans are all over it. You know, typically, you'll know this, Alec. A, a drug to be tested for safety and efficacy is a ten-plus-year um, exercise. So this is all happening in real time. Um, and there are some there are some glimpses of of positive news. There's you've probably read about this drug chloroquine. It's a very old malaria drug. There's early evidence. It's not yet definitive. There's early evidence that um, it may be effective um, against this virus, and it's being used selectively. I, I want to just tell your listeners that nobody should take this except under strict medical supervision. It has significant side effects, should only be used for ill patients in hospital. So this is not a do-it-yourself treatment. Um, There are some antiviral treatments that have been used to treat HIV that are being trialed. There are a number of other uh, things in the works.
Mm. Um, And, you know, yeah. uh, The the, uh, cleroquine stories that are coming out of Nigeria now where there have been people dying because they've taken the drug without any supervision. So all of this stuff is pretty dangerous. There's a story uh, in the New York Times today of a a man from Arizona and his wife who drank uh, an agent that's used to clean fish tanks that has chloroquine in it. And this man died and his wife's in critical condition. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a real it's a it must only be taken under doctor's orders. So you've you've given us a good outline here. South Africa's had the blessing of time and a decisive move from government. As things stand right now, when will we know that these measures are actually succeeding? It's a hard question to answer. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's a, a sort of week by week thing. I would say, you know, that over the next two to four weeks, um, we'll be able to tell whether the curve that we're following looks like either the very best of the curves we've seen over time, like South Korea, um, or the very worst of the curves like uh, the Lombardy region of Italy or, or possibly New York now. And, you know, I, I'm hoping we're close to South Korea, which is a, a kind of slow, flat curve. But time will really tell, um, Alec. You know, the, 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 the case numbers have been going up quickly, as you know. Uh, the human mind struggles with this notion of exponential increases, but we are in that phase now, but it's still small. The other thing just to mention to your listeners is that another thing we've done much better than many countries, including U.S., is we've been doing a lot more testing earlier in the process. Um, And that's also why our numbers look, I think, relatively high compared to, say, Spain or Italy three weeks in. Um, Our numbers are higher than those, but that's because we've been doing much, much more testing than they were doing. So that's it, yeah. What about the idea of isolating the elderly or the vulnerable people and letting the rest get get back to work and get on with it? Um, you know, I mean, you, you, I suppose I've, I've never heard that put forward as a policy. Certainly, even before you come to whether you let everyone else get on with it, you, I think, you know, protecting the elderly and, uh, and those with other vulnerable uh, vulnerabilities is critical um, because, you know, there is a much higher uh, mortality rate among those who are, you know, sort of in their 70s and 80s. Um, Alec, I think that firstly, you know, it's the young are not immune from serious disease. So, some, you know, although it's a, a small minority, but there have been people under 50 and under 40 even in, in all countries of the world who got severely ill and died. Um, and secondly, you know, the young and the healthy end up mixing with the elderly too. So I don't think that's an accepted public health measure. So it's it's an interesting one. I haven't really given it much thought, so I, I don't have a lot of educated response to it. So welcome to Bernard Swanepoel of the Small Business Institute. Uh, Bernard, there's been a lot of controversy. Before we go into what was said last night by the president about small businesses, uh, social media was full this morning about concerns that the uh, support for small businesses would only be for 51% black-owned companies. Seems like somebody was on a really nice fake news uh, bandwagon there. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm so glad that turned out to not be the case. Um, our understanding is that it was a draft document, which is quite scary that somebody in government could uh, contemplate something like that. But let's all be grateful that it didn't survive the test of, uh, of the sort of process, the scrutiny. And clearly uh, right now that uh, the announcements of the president will be extended to all small businesses, uh, regardless of the uh, ownership structure or racial uh, category. What did you make of the uh, announcement last night? I think I'm one of the South Africans that are proud. Thank goodness we've got a true leader. Um, you know, this is the man for the moment. Um, but clearly our economy and our uh, country just can't afford to do what is really required. So I think in time we will wish we didn't have the sort of the hangover of the state capture. We would wish that we had a strong growing economy, but that's unfortunately not the case. So I think within the constraints, um, the president and, and the government is doing what they can. I think in terms of proactively shutting down, um, that's exactly the right thing. Could we have done with billions of rands of stimulus and more support? Absolutely. But where's that money going to come from? So I think we all pragmatically say uh, you know, this is probably as much as we can afford as a country at this stage. And the fact that the support from government is focused on small business. That's a very good, um, you know, very good uh, line. Um, and I think getting those two families, the Ruperts and the Oppenheimers, to each commit a billion rand, I mean, that has to be seen in the context of the 500 million that the government committed uh, previously and another 150. So clearly this is uh, um, President Ramaphosa asking us as South Africans to step up and support small businesses. But, you know, we can do more than that. You can say, I can't support, you know, I can't donate a billion rands, but you can continue to use your uh, Pilates teacher. You can continue to try and shop locally at people that you uh, would normally have shopped at. And so I think as as South Africans should all ask ourselves, what can we do to help our neighbor shop, our neighborhood shop, our corner shop? What can we do to help the people in our lives that are small and self-employed business people? Um, And we can't expect government. Well, we can expect, but it is not going to happen. Government just can't step up and solve all our problems. How exactly is all of this going to work? Do you have any of the details? No, um, we are all awaiting the details. Um, I think um, part of the problem is obviously the president has to go out and make the big announcements. And in three days, all of this has to be implemented. Um, I am aware of and am participating on behalf of the SVI in processes to try and fill in the detail. For example, what would constitute um, essential services? That's not so obvious. You know, What would care and maintenance look like? That is not so obvious. The detail of how um, small businesses would access uh, these funds, how would you qualify, how would you prove that the damage, uh, you know, done to your business by COVID is what it what you claim. That's, that's, that, that, that detail simply um, I don't think exists at this stage. Um, but I have to say our government and our uh, society and business is collaborating in ways that we haven't seen in a long, long time. So I'm quite... Uh, um, I'm quite positive that by the end of the week, the detail will be publicly available, Alec. It's interesting to reflect on what some of the investment guys have been saying, that they talk about a war economy. And in a time of war, you shouldn't hold back on your spending. 
because there might not be a tomorrow. Are you seeing it the same way that perhaps uh, it's a good start, but really it's important that these businesses survive and whatever it takes almost is, uh, m- must be applied? I do agree. Um, this is a war. This is a war on our economy. It certainly is a war in which the small businesses are in the front line. Um, and, uh, I mean, my message consistently to, to all the um, big businesses is you can't survive on your own. You can't come out on the other side of this having survived and then you have no suppliers then you have no local economy. Then you have no local businesses to procure from. So we have to survive together. Um I mean, despite all the positive things, um, I do think our Reserve Bank is going to drop the rates substantially more. And I'm asking, why did you not do that up front? We do get told that the petrol price is going to drop. Well, it certainly was heading for a significant drop. I'm, I'm saying, but why don't we drop it immediately? Why do we stick to a monthly adjustment in the middle of a war? So I think state of, uh, of natural disaster which is like a, a you know a state of emergency you you need to act quicker faster i'm not sure the banks can justify having a 2% margin on the money they get from the reserve bank and the online to economy perhaps 1% is enough for times like that so i think you know with hindsight we'll say we should have done more we should have done it quicker um, but let's be realistic we're moving way faster than some of the bigger economies of the world Bernard, what did you make of uh, the president's focus right up front about companies profiteering? And I I want to put this in a very personal uh, or frame this very personally. We pay for parking uh, in a building that's owned by Redefine. The parking operator today sent an email to say we're going to freeze the payments because obviously you can't come in for the next 21 days. Redefine has overturned that and said, no, we are charging you for the next 21 days. Now, to me, that almost fits squarely into the kind of behavior that the president was trying to avoid. How can you charge or continue to charge people when they're not allowed to use your service? It is difficult. I mean, you know, and and this is where I think we'll all sit and say, you know, is it worth our while to be charged for services like that in order to keep redefined as a company you name uh, afloat and going? Um, You know, on the other hand, some services like personal services, like your personal trainer, you may not be able to make use of it anymore. So legitimately, you can stop paying. But what is the effect of that? So I think we should all think of ourselves as a one spoke in a, in, a, in a wheel or, you know, one link in a chain. And I think if we act in a way that is, uh, you know, all about ourselves, we may survive, but it will be on our own. And I don't think that is what this time calls for. So I think uh, there, there can be no right or wrong. I mean, clearly, when somebody doubles the price of a product, that is just disgusting. And we should name and shame them and stop it immediately. Um, but I think there are lots of gray areas I would like corporate South Africa to think and say, how do we help other South Africans to survive? Because we start this with an economy where almost half of South Africans don't work. I'm not talking about the official unemployment rate. I'm talking about very few South Africans work. We've got 17 or 18 uh, million South Africans on social grants. So we have to look out for others. Um, We can't become too selfish and only care about ourselves. 
When you look into the future after this, there is the saying that one should never let a good crisis go to waste. Could it be that there would be lessons and learnings from this? Absolutely. I do think um, clearly this is going to be a uh, transformational um, event for all of us. I think the younger people are going to be formed and transformed in ways and and their thinking that will change business going forward. I think some businesses, some dinosaurs will die. I mean, this is a, a huge impact of, of you know on on our on our planet. So some dinosaur businesses uh, will die. I think we will relearn the strength of community and collaboration. And I think our economy got caught at the worst possible time. I think all the demands, the appeals for us to restructure our economy in a more um, progressive way. I think we're going to do it out of necessity and we're going to come out with a president that knows what it takes to lead. That's uh, certainly a, a positive all in its own right there. In the whole COVID-19 battle or the war that's against it, do you see a an end point? Are you amongst those, say like David Shapiro yesterday was telling us that he sees it as a 90-day war, but at the end of that, things will calm down? I do think um, I would certainly uh, uh, buy into 90 days as opposed to the 21-day lockdown. Um, but the lasting impact and effect could be very, very uh, long. Um, you know, we, as I say, we unfortunately went into this uh, battle quite weak as a, as a country and as an economy. Um, and we are going to disproportionately lose small businesses. I think we're going to find many a small business Self-employed people are going to no longer be able to do that. And obviously, big corporate South Africa will survive, but will they be um, driving the engine that drives our economy going forward? That's hard to see. So I suspect our economy is probably going to not do well for 18 months. um, But in 90 days, at least we will be able to say we've got an economy and a country working again. So I would go with that view. So what about those sectors that are most exposed? And in a South African context, the obvious one is tourism. And there'd be a lot of members of the Small Business Institute who are in that area. What should those people be thinking about doing to protect themselves? I honestly don't know. And I think most of our sort of reels, one man or bed and breakfast, uh, or Airbnb type sort of businesses in they, that space just don't know. Um, because, I mean, you can always say a business today has uh, three months worth of turnover in the bank, but that's a reality that doesn't exist for so many of these small businesses. Um, so I think for a lot of our really small businesses, it's a matter of how do we survive. And that's where I do think the survival of an individual uh, citizen and a small business in some cases is the same thing. You could see the countries that can afford it are, are doing helicopter money. They're putting cash in the hands of normal citizens. That obviously stimulates the economy and demand, but it also helps me, uh, uh, you know, help people um, to survive. Um, so I think we all surely are in that sort of phase of how do we survive? Um, and then when we start again, I would hope that the government has then made the hurdles, the red tape, the challenges, the cost, the time delays to start a business has made it easier because a lot of these businesses will have to go into liquidation. And I think we should sort of almost enable those people to try again and to start over um, 
One of the con- one of the discussions last night, or one of the points made by the president last night, was that the competition laws against banks are no longer going to be applied, and that they must get together as banks and work out somehow that they can keep uh, businesses afloat by perhaps extending debt and so on. How would that? I'm I'm not sure how that would work practically. Have you got any thoughts? I I read it in or heard it in the context of obviously, um, you know, if every bank tries to um, come up with solutions on their own, we will not be as successful as when we collaborate. And obviously, collaboration and anti-competitive behavior is a a huge gray area. Um, I don't know what that specifically uh, targets. Um, but I can tell you one area I would like banks to collaborate is to come together and say, you know what, the difference between what we get charged now by the Reserve Bank and what we on lend at, we'll all decide to only charge 1% extra. That would be great collusion, anti-competitive behavior or whatever we call it. And that would immediately stimulate our economy um, and help our people survive. But Again, uh, there must be clearly specific areas that uh, would have been illegal in the past that the government would like the banks to collaborate on now. How many people work for small businesses? Do you have any any understand any idea of that? We try to do research because 98% of companies, registered companies in this country by number, are small businesses. What we are finding is that Our economy is over-concentrated, and we all know that. So our big businesses, uh, our thousand largest employers, which includes government, employs just under 70% of South Africans in formal employment. That is completely uh, disproportionate to anything else in the economy. So our small business sector is not as vibrant and as healthy and hasn't been as in uh, any other sort of typical uh, country. Um, So we think that as little as 40% of formal jobs in this country is actually through small and medium enterprises. Our problem, of course, has been that large businesses are not job creators anymore. In in all the economies we find, job creation happens in those businesses that have survived. They employ 50, 60 people, and then when they eat a sweet spot or their product takes off, they employ 2,000 or 20,000 people two or three years later. So those unicorns, those successful growth stories, that is what has been missing in our country. But can we afford to uh, shed um, the uh, 40% of the jobs that is created by small and medium enterprises? Clearly not. Our supply chains will collapse. Our service industry will collapse. There will be no restaurants. There will be no people uh, driving Uber cars. So we can't afford it. Many of those entrepreneurs that Swanapur frets about are in the hospitality sector where the virus is having the most damage. Among them is Mark Waxberger, founding CEO of The Capital. And here he shares how he's adjusted the business to offset the impact of a virus that has laid much of the tourism and hospitality sector to waste. We started off having the record month of record months being March 2020. Absolutely, uh, incredibly, incredibly busy doing, doing north of 80% occupancy across our group. And two weeks ago, we started seeing a reduction by about 30%. And then all of a sudden, after the president's announcement, it went to kind of like 10% occupancy in our group in one fell swoop. 
uh, we then uh, launched a campaign and pivoted our business into welcoming self-isolation cases as well as uh, turning our property into safe havens, uh, which is really a sanctuary where we have the absolute uh, uh, World Health Standard uh, food supplies, cleaning uh, uh, procedures in place just to make sure that we provided the best of the best uh, in terms of a safe zone. And then we started building up very nicely from that. We went and built our occupancy up to call it about 25, 30%. And then with the new announcement of the lockdown, uh, we have further launched a, a apartment special. We call it a lockdown special where people are staying with us at 70% discount for people staying for the 21 days or longer in our apartments. So we are starting to fill up uh, uh, thick and fast on the back of that. Cheapest, Mark. You're looking at things in a very lateral way. Uh, how can you do things so quickly? You know, if you think of the hotel industry, most parts of the hotel industry are management companies. Some of the big names that you know are managers on behalf of a property owner. Uh, And that's quite nice for them in these times, I must tell you, because they don't have the liabilities of uh, bank debt and the like. It's the property owner that does. Uh, But at the same time, they just can't move quickly. The bureaucracy uh, uh, that they have is something we don't have. We make decisions amongst an exco team of five of us quickly and we implement immediately. Uh, so uh, that's what's needed in these times is agility. What, what about the cleaning staff, though, the staff who actually service the apartments? So firstly, what we've done is we've said we're out to save every job in our group. We have 550 people that work for us, as well as an additional 250 who are reliant on us in terms of being outsourced, including cleaning. Uh, and our objective is to protect their jobs. And uh, and so far we've done that, and we hope to do it. If this crisis can end, then there's uh, then, then, then job would have been done successfully. If it doesn't, then you know what's been happening in the hotel industry is, uh, you know, hotels have been mothballing and laying off. We are fighting absolutely full on to prevent that from happening. Uh, and so cleaning is uh, one of those uh, in terms of staffing. We've pushed our cleaners to be of the absolute high standards in terms of protecting themselves. So they have all the sanitizing equipment and the face masks and whatever it takes to protect themselves and in turn protect our clients. And by creating that safe zone and implementing it well, they're in turn actually protecting their own jobs because with doing those protocols, we've seen people come and book into us knowing that we have those incredible standards. But now for the 21-day lockdown, wherever yes. you are on Thursday night is where you've got to stay. So are your, are your staff going to be staying on the premises that evening? Correct. It's not a full staff complement. It's more of a skeleton staff complement, but they will be staying in the property. Uh, because we are hosting... Um, uh, most self-isolation cases, uh, we are able to trade. Uh, we also have airlines that we look after, so it allows us to trade it. We need to, uh, in theory, we could drive from home to the hotel as an essential service, but we say, no, 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 let's look after our staff and just look after getting them off the streets, and we've, uh, um, we've, we've put them up in the hotel as well. How high do you think you can push your occupancy during this period? 
we will push our occupancy in some hotels to 70-80%, whilst others will probably land up mothballing one or two that are in the same place. And the reason why we're mothballing them is we know what's going to happen when the self when this uh, lockdown period finishes, is that unfortunately uh, we're going to go back into self-isolation uh, in all probability, unless uh, this really works and stamps out the virus. Uh, and we're also waiting for the inevitable, which is what's happened worldwide, where people need these hotels for uh, uh, COVID healthy patients. And we're prepping for that. We, we're not saying we're doing that yet, but we're keeping properties ready to assist to stop the spread. Another one seeing opportunities in the gloom is experienced money manager Sam Hooley of ReCM CounterPoint, who explains why he hasn't been this eager to buy shares since the global financial crisis. I asked him how long he sees the current crisis continuing for. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, We honestly have no idea. I think the uncertainties are way too high, and we're not really trying to predict it. I think that you really... If, if you look at, at where we are in South Africa, let's look at the local economy. I mean, we're on the verge of a, of a 21-day lockdown in our country. There's a lot of uncertainty. We think smaller, smaller businesses will struggle. We think many businesses will struggle. There's a lot of support in place, but it's hard for you to judge uh, not only how long this will last, but the impact will be on the revenue line and ultimately on the cost line. So I would say that 12 to 18 months is a conservative estimate of what it takes just to come through on the other side. And that's what we're looking at. So if you reverse engineer 18 months, what you really want to know is, is the balance sheet strong for for equities? Is cash flow sufficient to survive? Um, and, And will this business be around and with the ability to thrive and effectively mop up uh, a lot of the demand that will be that, that will surge at that point in 18 months time hmm. so how bullish are you relative to other times because you've been in the market for a few decades relative to other times in your experience i am i would say i'm i'm as bullish as i've as i've ever been on equities based on the opportunities and the quality of the opportunities that i see today the one difference between now and the previous occasions when I have been as bullish is really that the environment globally is an environment where you have very low interest rates, close to zero, or even negative yielding, you know, negative rates. And in a relative basis, equities have never, ever been as attractive. And remember, equities are really a share of a business. People forget that. They think it's they think it's a price that moves up on, on, on a screen, up and down on any given day. It's really an underlying business run by a management team that you want, that you have to like, you have to trust, and you have to admire them in the way they allocate capital. So I haven't ever been as bullish on equities relative to other asset classes uh, as long as I can remember, Alec. Uh, so that, that makes us unique. But we are in a unique situation, you know, after 10 years of extraordinary uh, policymaker intervention and monetary intervention. And the announcement that the president made last night, do you think that's going to bring the end date closer? In other words, the end of this crisis, this war that some people talk about? 
Yes, uh, I think it was the right decision. I think it was a courageous decision. It was a it it, it was steeped in wisdom. Uh, I support it fully. I know it will be hard. Um, I, I think that in the long run, economies can only survive if people are healthy, able to contribute. And I, I certainly think from the point of view of South Africa, it is phenomenal. You know, we, we, we are often seen as a third world economy, but this is a very, very first world response. And in some ways, better than some of the, the, you know, the leading countries in the world in terms of the way they've responded. So as a South African, I'm very proud. I feel that we've done the right thing. And then let's see where we are post the lockdown in 21 days and and, and then reassess from there. The full interview with Sam is on BizNews Radio podcast channel. Still with money, after the massive sell-off on global financial markets, many are wondering what these super wealthy are doing with their cash right now. Licking their wounds or gearing up to buy more assets. Michael Sonnenfeld is the chairman of Tiger 21, a company which manages $77 billion worth of assets on behalf of 770 ultra-high net worth people. He spoke to our partners at Bloomberg, Lisa Abramovitz and Paul Sweeney. Well, everybody is obviously socked into their homes and gone through a transformation of being virtual. Uh, so that's new for everybody uh, going into this are members which are not just wealthy, they're entrepreneurs. It's a subset of people with certain levels of wealth, but because of entrepreneurs, it allows them to think about this quite differently. And for the last year, people have been getting nervous about the market, but of course, nobody could have anticipated the uh, the coronavirus, nor the Russia-Saudi uh, Arabia oil debacle. It's sort of like having a tsunami and an earthquake at the same time. So while, while real estate has remained tops for our members at about 28% of uh, assets, it's actually come down as well. They have taken chips off the table over the last year and maintained very strong cash reserves at 12% so that they're not forced to sell uh, at a bottom like this but have enough living expenses so that they can uh, power through or survive to the best of ability, but obviously there's a lot of devastation all around. Michael, what are your clients thinking here as to, you know, kind of the duration here? Are they thinking, uh, kind of to Lisa's question, maybe time to maybe look at certain names or certain asset classes, or are they taking a, boy, this could be a, a much longer, lower for longer type scenario? So I don't think there's any one view. It's a collection of views, uh, and our members who are typically in groups that meet in person now or meeting virtually. We've shifted the organization completely to virtual uh, meetings uh, on a dime, so to speak. Um, and uh, obviously, some members are looking for opportunities. Uh, a number of us traded uh, shorts uh, at the first sign of coronavirus uh, of the market, and that trade uh, has turned out to be very good. But uh, in almost in most cases, the profits from those shorts has simply offset declines in the portfolio because you can't liquidate private equity and real estate uh, in a month. And that's uh, where we have a large concentration. But as to timing, I think everybody understands this is, this is totally unique. And the, the medical issues, the health issues are likely to peak within three to six months, uh, as has happened everywhere else. Uh, but when you have the kind of 
economic dislocation. The question is how long will it take to, for the economy to bounce back? And the only insight that we have is uh, typically it takes less time. Most people say 10 years. This could uh, be uh, returned in two to three years, but it's not going to be in six months. Michael, I want to go to your point about the real estate investments, that there were some chips taken off the table ahead of this, but that still was uh, a significant holding or the biggest holding of your members. Tom Barrick, real estate investor, uh, said in a Bloomberg Television interview that the U.S. commercial mortgage market is on the brink of collapse. He predicted a domino effect of catastrophic economic consequences if the industry isn't basically backstopped by the government. I'm wondering whether any of your members are, in technical parlance, freaking out right now and trying to liquidate sure. as much of their holdings as they can uh, in the face of what could be even more pain. Yeah, so... <clears throat> You have to distinguish between the, equi- the real estate equity market, and which are, is not a liquid market other than if you own it through REITs, and the commercial credit market uh, where there is more liquidity. Most of our members' uh, real estate exposure is in owning buildings directly or through private partnerships, limited partnerships. And, you know, a perfect example is uh, – My partner and I developed a Kohl's department store, meaning we owned the land and Kohl's uh, built their own building on the land. Uh, That was a rock-solid triple-net lease. But right now, uh, Kohl's is uh, shutted their doors. They have no revenue, so they're not going to pay their rent. And if uh, they they may not, they haven't stopped yet. But if they don't pay their rent, then how do you pay the mortgage? And so you have this cascading effect. So what Tom is talking about is unless there's help for the uh, rent payers, uh, you'll have this cascading effect that the landlords uh, can't make their debt payments, and that's where all hell breaks loose. So, Michael, just real quickly, what do your members think the government needs to do here? Uh, The government, first of all, needs to act decisively. Uh, Members, uh, I think, largely expect a a bailout, uh, and they really would like the kind of leadership nationally uh, that is calming that we've seen from FDR, as an example, during the war. And hats off to Governor Cuomo, who seems to have really taken the lead in the kind of uh, communications and straight talk uh, that is calming to people. Uh, people really would like to see a, a steady hand and an optimistic but realistic assessment about how to get through this. been episode three of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.